The objective of cleaning is not just to clean, but to feel happiness living within that environment. Marie Kondo. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Felonious Pundits. I hope we bring you much joy this week. I am Kinjad Svensgaard, and along with me, say hello to my friend and fellow pundit, Mr. A.J. Mass. Hello, indeed. I'm so excited. Not for this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But for the next 20 or so that will follow. (laughs) A.J., you kind of uh, mentioned how you felt that this was a skippable episode, uh, but then all the the rest of the run uh, for the next few seasons, at least, is pretty much uh, the bee's knees, so to speak. But after last week, this episode wasn't that bad. Is <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, how I felt. <laughs> I, I will grant you that. Uh, yeah, they were phoning it in towards the end of the season here. I think. How many do we need? 23, huh? <laughs> we got 20. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, folks, by the way, this is a podcast about the television program Criminal Minds. Each week, we recap and take an in-depth look at an episode of the show. I have never seen the show before, and we'll be giving you that first watch perspective. And AJ is our grizzled veteran who has seen each episode plenty of times, so he'll be coming at it with that viewpoint and perspective. This week, AJ, we looked at Season 2, Episode 22 of Criminal Minds. It is entitled Legacy. It was directed by Glenn Kershaw and written by Edward Allen Bernero, Bernero, our friend. Uh, and a frequent it, contributor and often the name gets slapped on when no one wants to take the name. <laughs> right. uh, and the show originally aired on May 9th, 2007. Let's just dive right into it, shall we? And just get it over with. <laughs> yes, let's. Again, this is the episode entitled Legacy, or as I call it, Wish I'd Never Saw This One. <laughs> yes. And this week... Legacy opens in a creepy-looking building that looks like an abandoned sanatorium or something, and yes, immediately reminds us, perhaps, of the Saw movies uh, I had written down in my notes, David Fincher-esque, or David Fincher-lite. Or James Wan, let's go, let's give the man credit. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, true. It's a creepy-looking abandoned sanitarium or something, industrial type hospital, some some kind of old building like that. And we see an old man with a bloodied face. He's being wheeled somewhere on an all metal gurney by a masked person who, let's just say right away, he's our unsub. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes they don't disguise it, even though we don't see who he is. We, we, there's no doubt. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, our, our poor older gentleman is bound to the gurney. He's pleading for his captor to wait. And as he's looking around at the various rooms as he's being wheeled by, he asks if this is a hospital and did he make it out? At first, he thinks he did make it out, whatever that means. Uh, But he spies what I think is like a lit 
cremation chamber in one of the rooms that he's passing, and he realizes that perhaps he did not make it out after all. A fun, a fun, a fun night out. <laughs> this was not. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he uh, pleads a bit more with his captor, and then we see his captor putting his glasses on his face so that he can see the bloodied lamp above him, light fixture above him. And then our uh, unsub has gone over and grabbed some kind of uh, implements of some sort to continue whatever his nefarious work will be. Yeah, and of course he's whistling while he works with a creepy yes. whistle song, which is just like, you know, as far as creating a mood, this is very very effective. So uh, I, I don't want to poo-poo entirely on this uh, episode. There are some uh, nice touches, and this is one of them. It creates a nice mood. Uh, what it has to do with the BAU and the rest of the, you know, the, the <laughs> I don't know. But nevertheless, it, you know, creepiness was found. So speaking of creepy, we next cut to Gideon in his office. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's got an old style a uh, real projector setup, the kind who, if you remember a certain time in our country, we used to have the thing called the AV kid in class, and he would be in charge of that projector. I was one of those AV kids. Man, those real projectors were fun to to thread and uh, and I mean, loop you know, you you actually had a, re- a reel-to-reel projector. I mean, we we just had the stupid slides with where they we were talking about give you the document. <laughs> Ping! And you click the slide. <laughs> Ping! Uh, well, maybe that was a, a, a region-based thing because don't try to make it look like I'm older than you, all that much older than you, AJ. Uh, <laughs> we're pretty much we're pretty much tied, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, Gideon's got this projector out, and he's enjoying an old Charlie Chaplin movie. Hotch comes in, and they chat about the film that Gideon's great grandfather apparently burgled from a movie studio that he worked at back <laughs> in the day. Morgan comes in, recognizes Chaplin on the screen, and because game recognized game, he lets them know Chaplin was an original player. <laughs> yeah, knows nothing about his actual uh, cinematic uh, right. exploits, just the rumors and, and, and the gossip of him, uh, you know, being an original player. <laughs> <laughs> and then he makes fun of the guys uh, for not watching this on DVD basically letting them know that they're old farts. And uh, he bounces uh, away uh, as Gideon and Hotch continue to watch the uh, film and laugh. Hotch laughing, though. Very yeah. out of character. Very out of character. Another another way you can always tell when the people who wrote the episode have no idea who these characters are is if the first instinct is, let's have Hotch laughing uproariously. Yes. <laughs> it just does not seem right. Uh, we next cut to JJ's office, and there is a fidgety-looking man who's knocking on her door and then coming in, introducing himself as Detective McGee. He's from the Kansas City PD, and he had talked to JJ last week about some missing people uh, in downtown Kansas City, and JJ is like, uh, didn't I tell you to just send me the files? <laughs> like, what are you doing in my office, dude? McGee doesn't actually have the files because... No one has actually been reported missing yet. He piles a bunch of those little black and white memo notebooks 
in a very careful pile onto JJ's desk. And apparently these are his notes on every person he's come into contact with on the streets. He's kept a notebook on each and every one, AJ. And, yeah, uh, yeah, he's got, uh, he kind of looks like uh, Michael C. Hall, Dexter's younger brother. <laughs> like, like he, would, yeah. he would be definitely in that family, yet he behaves like Monk. <laughs> yes, <laughs> good call, good call. So anyway, his department had uh, asked him to keep an eye on the Skid Row area and all of its people, so that's why he was doing that. And he eventually started noticing that the people that he was taking notes on started disappearing. He actually even got an award for bringing crime down in the district, but he says he didn't even do anything. It's just that the people who usually do all the crimes were starting to go missing. Uh, (laughs) Again, this sounds a lot like an episode of Dexter. (laughs) (laughs) JJ is like, well, isn't that the nature of these type of people, that they're transient And McGee says, yeah, but not this many and not this fast. So JJ asks how many people we're talking about. And McGee says at least 63 people that he used to see regularly and they're just not there anymore. Then all of a sudden last week he got mailed a note that says there are two types of people in the world. Those who do the work and those who take the credit. You should be ashamed. So there is someone out there who knows that he hasn't done anything. And JJ is like, 63 people? That has gotten her attention. And McGee is sure that something is happening, something bad. We cut to a bloody floor and water rinsing blood into a drain and see the old man's glasses there. And then we head to credits. Yeah. We uh, come back from the credits and detective McGee is briefing the team and showing them all his notebooks. And every time one of the team takes one of his notebooks or kind of messes up his pile, he noticeably starts rearranging it. So it's back to a perfect little pile again. And uh, everybody on the team notices that. And McGee seems to be displaying some, some type of uh, OCD type behaviors, let's say. Yeah, and and normally I, I would say that uh, you know when someone's like doing that, if if he wasn't a police officer, if he was just some person rando off the street trying to tell them this is what's going on, you know they would roll their eyes and be like, oh, "This guy's probably got a few screws loose." But I mean, isn't this proof that he's like the reason he's noticed this is because he pays so much attention to detail that he 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 just knows when something is out of place it, it actually lends more credence to his story whereas i think they're trying to play this scene as if it's like <laughs> look at this guy <laughs> right it, yeah you're right i agree so mcgee explains that he's sure that these people are missing he just can't convince anybody garcia is there she doesn't know if she has enough information from his notebooks to be able to clickety clack anything but she's going to try McGee assures Gideon that he's checked all the hospitals, morgues, etc. Nobody has turned up, so he's been doing his job. They let him know, okay, cool, we'll, we're going to need an, an official invitation from uh, someone higher up on the food chain in order to do anything about this case. And McGee doesn't know that he can provide that. Gideon is basically, well, sorry, that's necessary. And then Hotch starts to put the kibosh or kibosh uh, i've heard it 
phrased both ways. I've always said kibosh. I've heard people say kibosh. But anyway, that's what Hotch starts to put on the whole proceedings. He pumps the brakes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And uh, but before he does, JJ gives him one of her JJ looks. And she says, Hotch, we could be talking about 63 victims here. And since JJ has superpowers, Hotch is like, okay, uh, here, me and JJ will fly down and try to talk to your commanders and impress on them the need for our services. And if they get an invitation, then they they can invite the rest of the team down. So they uh, wrap things up and McGee is a little perturbed that Hotch took a couple of notebooks with him on his way out of the room. And he doesn't feel good about that. And he wants them back. And Morgan basically calms him down, but says, look, uh, we need to look at these notebooks so we can, you know, check up on these people. And McGee would rather just give them the information and keep his notebooks. (laughs) So Morgan is like, "Okay, fine. You got about 30 minutes to brief us on those 63 people. (laughs) You know, I... I'm actually somewhat surprised he doesn't have a second copy <laughs> ready to hand off. <laughs> yeah, that that is true. So McGee starts to give them their little briefing and we cut to the BAU jet and we get our opening quote from Hotch. Of all the preposterous assumptions of humanity, nothing exceeds the criticisms made of the habits of the poor by the well-housed, well-warmed, and well-fed. Herman Melville. Well, well, well. (laughs) Well, well, well. It's a very quick scene on the plane because it's just Hotch and JJ, and uh, they observe the odd, continued odd behavior behavior of Detective McGee. And JJ admits that maybe he's a little bit mentally unstable and that they may be on a wild goose chase after all. And Hotch reminds her, as someone he greatly respects suggested... Only 30 minutes or so ago, <laughs> 63 people may be in trouble. So he thinks it's going to be, it may be worth the chase. Yeah. And again, just another example of this episode that they don't really know what they're trying to say in this episode. <laughs> it's like, good. this could very well be like a JJ saying, look, I know he's weird, but we should look, you know, why, why should we treat people who act poorly or you know out of out of the norm as if they're crazy like that's not something we should be doing she could be like a champion and, 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 ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Hotch, you know Hotch at the beginning like no we absolutely can't well maybe yeah. and yeah. This, this is my that's my take on this entire episode yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, back at the BAU office, we have Morgan, Prentice, and Reed, and they've got the index cards of all their possible victims put up on a cork board. In a half uh, an hour. Yeah. In a half an hour. They have never been this efficient. <laughs> they have been briefed, and they have index cards on 63 people in a half hour. Yes. Um, uh, they do note that it's a lot of people, and could this maybe be a coincidence? And Reed starts to talk about the semantics of the word coincidence, but Morgan puts a quick stop to that. And uh, he asks Reed what the Yorkshire Ripper said about his victims. And Reed says, the women I killed were filthy bastard prostitutes that were littering the streets. I just was cleaning up the place a bit. And Morgan deduces that this guy is a house cleaner. Again, again, there is nothing 
kudos to Morgan, like, you know, for trying to come up with a theory. But we know nothing about where these people went or how they were disappeared or anything. This could be a poisoner. Like, we don't know. Like, ugh, just there's no information here. And uh, he does have to explain for those of us who maybe perhaps thought a house cleaner meant a literal house cleaner. No, this is what they call mission-based killers who believe that their killings are helping society out in some way. And uh, they usually devolve into killing machines. And Prentice is like, are we really going to let jurisdiction be an issue here? Morgan points out if they don't follow jurisdiction, no one's ever going to ask them to help. They have to do things by the book and just pray that no one else gets hurt in the I meantime. Mean, points to Morgan on that. You know, we can't just move into everybody's territory. They're, these people are hostile enough when we come in, <laughs> when their supervisors yeah. invite. So, you know, hey. So, of course, we immediately cut to someone else who is going to get hurt in the meantime. Uh, as we see a woman sort of stumble walking her way down a slummy looking street. And a uh, minivan pulls up behind her, and she uh, goes over to the driver who's called her, and let's just say she negotiate, negotiates a private party, if you catch my meaning, uh, with the driver for $500. Although, to me, this driver looked so fidgety and so sketchy, uh, I don't know that I would be doing business with this guy, but I guess you got to figure this woman is thinking she's got to do what she's got to do to get her money. And maybe it's natural for someone looking to avail themselves of her services to be well, fidgety. True, but she also seems to know know this guy. Like there, there was there was a, a germ of recognition like, oh, what do you want? Like it wasn't like, hey, strange, nervous man. It was like oh, you again. So I, I think there is at least some... Uh, reason for her to get over the real creepiness here is that at least she seems to know who this person is. Yeah. Uh, in any case, she uh, hops into the back of the van and they take off. And then next we see Garcia's office and Morgan has come in to see if she's found anything, but she hasn't. And she's feeling very sad. She She's clickety-clacked on her screen, and we just see sort of empty fields being listed by a bunch of names. But here's the thing. Here, here, here's my issue with this. I have no problem with this scene on its face, like dialogue-wise, where Garcia's like, look, you know, I didn't have a lot to go on. And there, you know, there's 63 names for me to, to go through. And it's just taking forever. That would be fine, except they do show us her screen, of which she's gone through 41 names so far, and it's clear from what we see on the screen, it's like, deep, 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 nope, deep, 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 nope, deep, 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 nope, next name, deep, 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 nope, deep, 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 nope, deep, 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 nope, next name. She's going to be done in five minutes. Yeah. Like, I don't understand how she thinks this is taking a long time. Garcia would not think that this is taking a long time. Unless we're making a joke on that. Oh, it's going to take me all five minutes. <laughs> That's not. She's right. like, this is going to take me hours. But she, she, it's going to be done in five minutes. <laughs> if that. And uh, spoiler alert, we don't get much Garcia at all in this episode. So I think they were trying to give her by her being sad. Spoiler the, alert, we're going to come back to the scene and the same screen's going to be up and she's going to be at name 47. Like, it's like, come yeah. on, but still going, beep, 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 boop. Next name, beep, 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 boop. <laughs> yep. Oh, boy. So, anyway, Morgan tells her to let her know, let him know if she uh, finds anything. 
and uh, he takes off. And then we cut back to our prostitute. She's uh, coming to. She's been unconscious, apparently. She's on a cement floor. She's moaning and groaning. She's groggy. Uh, she gets up, and then she remembers that the minivan driver must have gave her something. She sees she's locked in a freaky, all-cement room. She steps on something, cuts her foot, and she realizes that she's barefoot and that this freaky guy has taken her shoes. Uh, she goes over to the door and starts pounding it, and she's yelling that she's going to make this guy pay for this. And then she starts to get even more worried as she's screaming for someone to let her out to help her. And then she tries the door and it wasn't locked. I, I did like that little <laughs> point. Like, hey, just don't assume it's locked. It, it, it might be open. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll give her the groggy, you've probably just been roofied pass, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she stumbles into a hallway. Uh, she starts stumbling through the whole area, picking up speed. She runs through a few open doors, and then she opens another door, but slams her face into it because it, this one is actually locked with a one of those chain locks on the other side. So she's now got a bloody nose, and she again yells out that this freak, he's going to pay for this. So she decides to run at that door to, to break it in because it's one of those little flimsy chain locks. But as she bursts through, the floor is actually dropped down a few feet, and there's no stair uh, under the doorway. So she basically flies face first into the floor of the room, which happens to be covered in shards of broken glass. And yeah, this is like, let's have Jigsaw get on the mic right around here. Uh, you know, I'm expecting that. But uh, anyway, she's lying there on the floor moaning. And about 15 feet away from her, a door opens clearly to a well-lit hallway, perhaps promising uh, some freedom just yard, short yards away. Yeah, it's a real uh, John McClane situation here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Shoot the glass. Uh, yeah. It, I, I mean, I... I... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that it's horrible that there's glass on the floor and she fell into the room. But it's like, again, it's like every decision that, that's going to be made here. It's like, did you know she was going to even open this door? Did you did you know she was going to fall face first? Like, OK, she's barefoot. Sure, that that's going to make her not able to, like, just sprint across the floor here. But, you know, there's ways around these things. Yeah, I mean... She might have just sat there and goes, oh, man, this door is locked and sat, you know, like, who knows what she's going to do here. Uh, yeah. The, even though she basically sort of was set up in a maze that had one direction to go for the most part, there's still a lot of assumptions our, our unsub is making here. Yeah, we'll, we'll continue that, that when we get back to her very shortly. <laughs> mm hmm. Uh, meanwhile, we cut back to the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department, and uh, we see McGee, Hotch, and JJ walking in, and Detective McGee stops them at his desk and says he's going to go in to talk to his captain. JJ and Hotch note while he goes that his desk is the neatest detective desk in the history of detective desks. And uh, then we can overhear the captain saying, you did what? <laughs> <laughs> He hurries out of his office to talk to them. He basically tells them that Detective McGee has wasted their time. 
He has already told them him his theories, and they've already looked into it. They couldn't find a single missing person reported. He's so sorry that they came all this way, but they don't really need their help. Thank you. Goodbye. Hotch is like, uh, can I talk to you in your office? And uh, so they go off to his office, and JJ is a little bit mad, I would say, at uh, Detective McGee, telling him that he should have told them that his captain already knew about this. And McGee says, uh, well, would you have come if I did? And JJ kind of looks like, well, yeah, you got a good point there. <laughs> I mean, you know, you did find your way. I don't know. Did he fly? Did he drive? How did he get all the way from Kansas City to the BAU headquarters? Uh, you know, like, eh, you know, someone's going to take that much effort. He's probably not making it up. At least he believes it. You know, we then cut back to our bloody, groggy, moaning prostitute still laying on the glass, trying to move along the floor to the doorway. Uh, she takes off her jean jacket that she's wearing and starts to try to use it to uh, brush a path through the glass in front of her. And, and here's where, again, I mean, I get that she's groggy, but it's like, okay, she's she's smart enough to realize, oh, I can't move this glass with my hand. Uh, you know, take, take it and, like, you know, tie it around your feet. <laughs> You can tie around your foot and then hop. Like there's, yeah. there's just better ways that this kind of curl. Like, uh, move a little bit of glass. Uh, move a little <laughs> bit of glass. Uh, yeah. It's just, it just like draw it out. Draw it out. We got an hour of an episode to fill. Hour. <laughs> so uh, in the meantime, we cut back to the BAU office, and Gideon has. Uh, come over to Prentice and Morgan to ask if they've heard anything yet. Uh, they haven't heard anything from Hotch or JJ. And they mentioned that Garcia has gone through all the names at this point. Oh, what she's they, gone through all the what, names. So she's finished. Yes. Well, that didn't take long at all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but she didn't find anything. Uh, Reed is also there. He says they've been working on a preliminary profile based on the limited victimology that they have. And Gideon is like, profile? We don't even have this case yet. And Princess says, well, they want to be prepared in case they are called in. Uh, Gideon thinks perhaps that they have other work to do. Do they? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. Do they really? But Morgan says, this guy is a house cleaner, which, you know, causes uh, Gideon to stop in his tracks. And Reed says, with 63 potential victims. <laughs> and of course, you know, they both said their lines dramatically. So Gideon knows uh, that he better give in and just ask them what they have uh, gotten so far. It's yeah, it's like the motivations of this episode. Like this guy came in and said there was a problem. JJ says, OK. And I like, I don't know. But JJ says, come on. OK. And Gideon walks in and says, this is stupid. But Gideon. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, then cut back to the bloody glass shard room. <sighs> <laughs> Our uh, woman here is about five feet from the door. So now she stands up and uh, she has enough room to throw her coat right outside of the doorway and decides to jump over the last few feet of glass and, and out into the hallway beyond. Again, if she had just tied her damn jacket around her feet, she would have done a lot faster. <laughs> mm -hmm. We next cut back to our police captain talking to Hotch. He cannot believe that 
McGee has had the nerve to uh, do this and call them. And Hotch says, look, just because he's obsessive compulsive doesn't mean he's not a good cop. And the captain says, well, he thought assigning this guy to Skid Row would be harmless uh, because those people only cause trouble for each other. Meanwhile, JJ is at McGee's desk. She sees the envelope that McGee got his uh, note from. Uh, He tells her that they dusted it for prints, but it's clean. She looks at a certificate on his desk and notes that he's only been a cop for four years and he's already made it to detective. Uh, And he says they promoted him to keep him away from the general public. (laughs) That made me laugh. Nothing like a self-aware problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We then uh, cut back to Hot Shoes explaining to the captain, again, 63 AJ, how many people were (laughs) did this guy find missing? (laughs) I'm going to go out on a limb here and say it was more than 60, but less than 65. Somewhere in that range. And not 64, because that would have sounded, that's a power of two. That would have sounded too made up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Or perhaps made us thinking of the delightful Beatles song, and uh, we can't have that during this traumatic situation. Well, we can work it uh, out. <laughs> oh. Then we, uh, but uh, Hotch is saying that it's not, un- it is unusual actually to have that many people missing from a localized area. And the captain asks if people like this can even be missing. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why he made me think of Chandler when he said that. <laughs> Could they be missing? He's upset that a member of his team called in the FBI on a case that he doesn't even believe is occurring. Hotch says, well, the note that this guy, that uh, uh, the detective got from the unsub could be from the unsub. And the captain says, no, it could also be from a cop that just didn't like the fact that he got this award. And uh, Hotch says, look, this unsub type that we have is actually usually pretty easy to catch and no one else has to get hurt. Uh, He believes that the problem is only going to get worse. And the captain is like, well, thank you. We'll keep an eye on that now. Bye, Felicia. Uh, (laughs) Who thinks bye? Have a safe flight. (laughs) Thank you for flying the friendly ass. I I do like the fact that, that, uh, you know, his first instinct is like, bums, whores, junkies. These people don't matter. (laughs) Yeah. Hot says, what what would it be like if these victims were cheerleaders? This was, I was like, that's your first go-to here. He's like, or teachers or mothers. And I thought, I was really wondering why cheerleaders was the go-to to to Hotch for like uh, a citizen who deserves to be alive. (laughs) Yeah. it's, it's, It's like, what if these people were members of the marching band, scientists, <laughs> yes. Avon ladies? <laughs> and then Hotch, you know, then points out, he says, you just said, can bums even be missing? And Hotch says they can and they can be hurt and they can be scared and they can be killed. <laughs> we cut to JJ talking to Detective McGee, noting that it seems like he really cares about these people. And he explains uh, about how his father taught him how to be this way. Yes, his dad was also a detective. Actually, he was Captain Wright's partner, and he was killed back in the line of duty in 1985. And uh, he figures it's pretty much probably the only reason they keep him on in the department. 
JJ is about to say, oh, she's sure that's not the only reason, but she's actually noticed uh, the envelope again that had the uh, note from the unsub. And she realizes something about the postmark. She realizes that the postmark says Kansas City, Missouri. And this is actually great news because now that means we're talking about an interstate case, which means it's federal, baby. Yeah, imagine that. JJ, once again, the only person who notices anything and actually does detective work. And this one's pretty easy, especially because mm-hmm. from the moment this episode started, it was like, hey, I'm from Kansas City, and I'm thinking to myself, Missouri or Kansas? <laughs> yeah. First thing I had to ask myself, and until they put the, the, the Chiron on the screen, Kansas City, comma, Kansas, I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's going to be important. <laughs> uh, and of course... It, yeah, because they wouldn't have said they wouldn't have pointed it out otherwise. Actually, they probably wouldn't have said it in Kansas. They probably would have just said it in Missouri <laughs> if it wasn't important that this was in Kansas. <laughs> Good point. Uh, so JJ immediately goes over to Hotch in the captain's office to tell them the news. Hotch is immediately like, "Well, it is our case now, and uh, I'd like to retain Detective McGee as a consultant." Uh, Captain Wright starts to protest, but Hotch doesn't want to fight. He'll, he lets him know he'll share whatever information they have with them. And when the time comes to make an arrest, he'll let uh, Captain Wright's men make the arrest. Captain Wright asks him why would he do that. And basically his answer is because that's how the BAU do it, baby. <laughs> this is how we operate. Yo! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I will say that... Uh, the, the the closeness of the two Kansas cities is something a lot of people, I don't know if they, if you realize if you've never been there, but I, I actually, in my, one of my former lives, I was mascot for the New York Mets, and I actually was flown out to Kansas City to go to a Royals game, and I, I hit the airport, and was we were on the way to the hotel, and I was like, hey, how, how close really is Kansas City, Kansas? And like, it's right there. I said, can we go there? just so I can say I've been to Kansas because I might never have this chance again. <laughs> so we drove to Kansas. I got out, walked around. We got food from McDonald's in Kansas and took it back to Missouri. So I do know it's pretty darn close. <laughs> right. Uh, just across the way, right? So uh, we cut back to the bloodied prostitute. Oh, can we stop calling her a prostitute? <laughs> She's just yes. a victim at this point. <laughs> The, the reason I kept saying that is because uh, I, I didn't have her name at this oh, point. I, yet. Under, I understand. Yes. Exactly. But we can go, uh, but we yes, can go the with woman. sex worker. Let's be a little more positive on the show. Yes. <laughs> Especially uh, because she's going to be called whore like 16 times in this episode. <laughs> right. Uh, we cut back to her, AJ. And uh, she's at this point standing back up in the hallway, looking at the surroundings, calling out for help. And all of a sudden, the lights cut out, and we do hear our unsub speaking over a microphone, over Can a loudspeaker. A game? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he asks her if uh, she wants to know the future, uh, how her day is going to end. A film of the old man from the cold open uh, getting killed, apparently, appears on the wall, and... Uh, yeah, so that's what appears on the wall, and and our our sex worker Maggie 
Maggie Maggie. starts to... We we eventually find out her name, yes. (laughs) Yes, like in the very next scene. She is so depersonalized this whole way through, absolutely. And I think that's part of the point, but it it is ridiculous. Yeah, she's watching this this, this film, and you know, what are the odds that the one day that Gideon breaks out his old film projector, the unsub is also showing film on a film projector? What are the odds? What are the chances of this? I mean, oh, jeez, really, guys? (laughs) And AJ, I see them both using film projectors, and I think, what makes them any different? Hmm. Indeed. (laughs) And, (laughs) can I just say, the fact that the final shot in this little preview of the future is the unsub pulling out a bandsaw to use the killing blow with a saw. Uh, guys, we get it. We get it. Yeah. We know what you're ripping off. You don't have to. <laughs> you're not clever. <laughs> so the lights come back on. Maggie starts to plead for her life, starts mentioning that she has a baby daughter. Uh, you know, that that's the thing you do when you're in these situations. Start trying to make yourself. it personalized. Again, yes. since we haven't been told her name by anybody yet, this just comes off as a lame effort. But, you know, she's doing the right thing. Yep. She says, why is he doing this to her? What did she ever do to him? He goes into a little diatribe about the what the legacy. Ding, so we ding, get a, ding, uh, ding. <laughs> Yes. Of being a quote unquote whore is basically he lists a bunch of venereal diseases and <laughs> insinuates uh, a, a general blight upon society just for her being herself. Yeah. I remember uh, that Beatles song. Being for the legacy of Maggie the Whore. (laughs) (laughs) So we cut back to the police station now. And the rest of the BAU team has arrived there. Because this case is federal now. Uh, Gideon introduces himself, Morgan, Prentice, and Reed to Captain Wright. They tell him to gather his people. They're ready with the profile. And Wright is like, already, huh? Uh, (laughs) And they let him know, yeah, they've been working on it all day. Uh, and when he sort of gives them a glance at that, he's they're like, uh, Reed is like, out of an abundance of preparedness. <laughs> yeah, nice try, Reed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, and as the captain walks off, Hotch is like, I don't really think he likes us. <laughs> uh, he's not really okay with this. I, I think he may just uh, hope that we can prove that we're wrong and embarrass ourselves. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like that uh, it's not a game of cat and mouse here, but it's like, you know that we know that you know that we right. know that you know. It's still uh, the hot and cold nature of right throughout this episode is a little is a little much because mm-hmm. uh, it's just like, ah, I'm so happy that you're here. Oh, you prepared something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. AJ, next we cut back to Maggie. She's saying she doesn't have any diseases. She's been checked out. She's clean. And our unsub says she doesn't know the meaning of that word. Anyway, she has been judged and sentenced, and the sentence is death. She cries out no, again reminds him of her daughter. And he says he's, you know, don't let it be said he's a... He's completely a jerk. He's going to offer her a chance. Uh, mentions that she's in in the center of a roughly 130,000 square foot facility. 
and she has until sunrise to find her way out. <laughs> Maggie, what's waiting for you? <laughs> Pick the right door. If uh, you're able to get out of here by sunrise, you win live. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and by the way, Sunrise is only a few hours away because he understands that we must have a timeline. You need the ticking clock, and here's a ticking clock. Huzzah! <laughs> we uh, go back to the police station. The team is prepping their the cops by telling them basically what a profile is. And then we cut to uh, Maggie wandering through all of the creepy halls. She's bumping into another wall. And on this wall, written in blood, I guess, is uh, the phrase dead end. And then we cut back to Morgan explaining to the cops about their term a house cleaner, uh, that this guy thinks he's fixing what's wrong with the world. This type of unsub becomes a loner. Not many people can tolerate him. If he has any relationship at all, it will be with a person that's subservient to him. Uh, he'll be fastidious, tending toward obsessive-compulsive disorder. And we do cut to a quick shot of McGee uh, when they say that, uh, as if anybody would think McGee had anything to do with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on. Like, no subservient <laughs> person would go and... Travel from Kansas City, Kansas, all the way to Virginia to get someone to come catch him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a little much. Uh, they continue on with the profile. This guy uh, probably has an overwhelming sense of an indignation towards uh, anything that he judges to be wrong. And he wouldn't even consider the reasons why someone else might disagree with him. And a random cop says, this guy sounds like a real jagoff. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks for the number one. You get your under <laughs> <Yeah>. five pay. <laughs> yes. Uh, Morgan says, exactly. He's a class A scumbag. And uh, meanwhile, while they're giving the profile, uh, we do see various shots of Maggie running around in our hospital of horrors, trying different doors, different. She comes upon a stairway and she tries the door at the bottom of the stairway, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and, and the, th the thing is here that, I mean, I think we all know, and even Maggie is going to figure this out very quickly, that it's like, this is not really a game, because she doesn't have any free will of which way to go, which is like, oh, go this way. You know, part of me is like, just because it says dead end doesn't mean it's the dead end. Just because there might be a sign that says wrong way doesn't mean I turn around. I might stay there and investigate a little longer. Why, why touch right. the guy whose prime is to kill you? But it is just kind of like... The thing that you always get whenever there's one of these episodes on any of these procedurals where it's like, I'll give you a chance to escape. They're always hurting you somewhere. I mean, right. It's always a hurting. Never go the way that you think that they want you to go. <laughs> and don't overthink that either. Don't start going, oh, but maybe he knows I might think he wants to go that way. No, Just because these, these guys are always the easiest to catch because it is that straightforward. I will yeah. say... No one's the evil genius enough to say, well, if I pretend in my hospital bed to be somebody else and then put this seven movie sequence in order with flashbacks, and this is actually the prequel. No, it's never that complicated. <laughs> so then we get we see Prentice. Uh, she's bringing up the fact that that since McGee started noticing these disappearances about a year ago, 
There was probably a stressor at that time, likely the death of a family member or someone who had some semblance of control over him. Now, no one has any control over him. He probably is not a working man currently. No time for work with all the killing he has to do. Um, At this point, he's just a predator, killing machine. It's all he thinks about. Uh, We then cut to a shot of Maggie sitting on some stairs in in a stairwell. And we get a quick shot of our unsub making some kind of adjustments on a control panel, which I'm glad we got because I was wondering, you know, exactly how all these doors were opening and closing and film coming on right at the right, you know, lights going off here. Uh, so I'm glad to see he had a switchboard of some kind. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the worst escape room ever. <laughs> there were no puzzles to solve, which is like, turn right. Oh, he's released gas. I better turn left. <laughs> yes. Yep. So that's what uh, his latest adjustments on the control panel did. There's a vent opening up and some smoke or gas starts pouring into the little stairwell that Maggie's at. So she coughs and goes up the stairs and she reaches the door there. Uh, we see that our unsub has pushed a button, which immediately unlocks the door so that Maggie's able to open it. She collapses for a moment, but smoke starts pouring in here, too. So she gets up and hobbles off in a different direction. And we can see clearly marked on the wall that she is heading toward heading toward the slaughterhouse. That not can't a, be not, good. Not a good sign. Not a good place to go. <laughs> I, you know, and the other thing is, like, whenever you're in one of these uh, situations, and I say whenever, not that it happens to the normal person, but it happens to the victims <laughs> crime right. dramas all the time. It's like, if the guy says to you, all you have to do to live is escape, and you're continually going up the stairs, you're not going the right way. <laughs> you want to go down the stairs. <laughs> towards the ground floor and the exit. True that. So after what was, I assume, a commercial break, we come back and we're in a sketching looking under the freeway homeless camp type area. You notice in these shows, it's, it's always under a freeway somewhere. The, 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 the homeless area. Exactly. It's hard to believe these shows copy each other. (laughs) And uh, Morgan and Prentice approach a homeless man who's digging through some trash. They start to ask You mean Old Shack? (laughs) Yes. This guy looked like Old Shack from the future. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. And uh, they ask him if he's seen any unfamiliar faces hanging around. And then... We get some sad, homeless, evoking music playing, and we get the montage of the team canvassing the area. And my notes, I simply wrote, O-M-G-Y. <laughs> <laughs> Why do we need a montage of questioning that we don't hear of all the random homeless people going, nope, nope, sorry, can't help you, nope, 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 nope. I'll tell you why, because this episode sucks. <laughs> We gotta Phil, burn the time somehow. Phil, we gotta. We we don't have enough plot for this, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, this is the point where it must be hours later since the team has now flown to Kansas City. 
uh, the whole team, and we cut back to Garcia, and yes, she is still looking at her same computer screen. Same AJ. computer screen when we've already had Morgan say Garcia finished the list and has found nothing, but yet hours later it's still no fifty. Yes, we just see Garcia looking sadly at that. Uh, as she perhaps ponders the plight of homeless people in America. <laughs> so then we see Morgan and Prentice, and they're talking to a homeless lady named Mona. And uh, after she uh, can't help them, Morgan is trying to offer her some help, but she turns it down. And that's when Morgan lays on the charm and the flirtation uh, with this lady. And uh, no one can resist Morgan. She's uh, Mona turns around. She's like blushing after, you know, oh, go on. And uh, I get it, baby. Someone as fine as yourself don't need no help. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And uh this causes Prentice to tell Morgan, oh, he's a good guy. Um, <laughs> and uh, Morgan is like, really? And, and she's like, yeah, you make the people around you feel good. And at this moment, Hotch and Reed walk up and Hotch says, well, he's no Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> uh, you're trying yeah. too hard. You're trying too hard. <laughs> oh, yeah, I could be a Charlie Chaplin. Watch me trip and fall. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Prentice asks Hotch how they did on their search. And Hotch says, besides Reed getting hit on basically by uh, every sex worker they talk to, nobody uh, thinks they saw the unsub. And uh, yeah, so that's what happened with Reed. (laughs) (laughs) They say that they also bumped into Gideon and McGee. They hadn't had any luck either. And Reed says, it's kind of odd. Like, if the unsub were out there, he'd probably stand out. People would recognize him. And Prentice says, well, where does that leave us? And at that moment, Captain Wright and JJ walk up. And Captain Wright answers her question and says, it leaves you right where I thought we were going to leave you. You all were so adamant that this guy would be so memorable. So if no one out here remembers him, then according to y'all, he doesn't exist. (laughs) And uh, Hotch says to the captain... Look, well, what do you think happened to them? And again, the captain is like, I don't think anything happened yeah, to them. Yeah, we already them. knew the answer to that one, Hotch. <laughs> <laughs> and Hotch is like, oh, right. You think they all got houses and jobs. I thought that was a nice <laughs> little comeback. But Yeah, in fact, in fact, they put that in there just for Hotch's comeback. <laughs> right, exactly. Prentice uh, notices the tone and in the mood in the room and perhaps tries to change it by changing the subject real quick. And she says, look, somebody got over 60 street smart people out of here and no one noticed. What does that mean? Uh, It means that the guy must've blended in. Like he somehow must belong. Like he's out there all of the time. He's a part of that group. At this point, Morgan notices the homeless woman, Mona, he was talking to before and she's talking to somebody professional looking by a van and Morgan says someone like social services because the van has a department of human services logo on the side of it. So he asks captain Wright uh, if their social services department patrols around in the middle of the night looking for people to help. And uh, Wright is like, no, they have to be called. Morgan takes off immediately running toward the van. 
He yells at Mona not to get in the van. Uh, he thought she didn't need any help. She says, oh, this nice guy was going to just give her a ride to the park. Meanwhile, this guy has already gotten in his van and is trying to <laughs> uh, exit the premises. But Morgan stops, asks him what's up, how he's doing. Captain Wright asks him for his city employee ID. Instead of uh, coming forth with that, the guy tries to take off. But Morgan has jumped halfway inside the window of the van and grabbed it at the steering wheel. And they crash, not violently enough to hurt Morgan, but they crash into uh, some parked cars nearby. Yeah, he's subdued. I, you know, I do love the fact that, you know, with, when it comes to the BIU in general... You know, sometimes their profile is not nothing more than uh, sounds like a psychic reading. It's like, okay, so the unsub we're looking for is someone who stands out completely in the crowd or fits in completely in the crowd. <laughs> right. <laughs> it, they don't do themselves any favors. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, it, again, just write a good example. Like, look, there's one of two scenarios here. Most likely is he someone he stands out in the crowd. But if we find out that's not the case, then maybe he's someone that they know very well. And destroy. like those are the two options here. It's one of the two. Let's work because they know that going in. But they always come across. Like, this is either a white male between 30 and 40 or an old woman who's 80 plus. <laughs> he's left handed yeah. or right handed. <laughs> I get that it's a TV show, but they, they, this could always be a little bit smoother because you, you, and there's no way it's like I told you nothing's happening. Well, the people are still missing. Maybe they, maybe I mean you don't even know how many. Well, we know sixty three, sixty three. We have an exact number <laughs> yes. and we have a list. It's not like we're saying hey, it seems like a, no. We have the, these are the sixty three. Here are their names. Garcia is going bloop 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 bloop. <laughs> right. It's, it's just, more info that they're letting on, even though there's not a lot of info. If, if his notes were a guy with red shirt, maybe. <laughs> Clearly, he's got all their names. Right. There's something to be found here. He won an award! <laughs> it's been noticed! <laughs> yes. So, uh, after they apprehend that fellow, we cut to Maggie. She's trying yet another door, and she sees that she's looking into a sinister-looking red-tinted room and since the door on that room is marked kill room, she decides, maybe I don't want to go that way. Probably a good choice. <laughs> she uh, limps off in the other direction. She hears another door opening. And from around the corner, <laughs> <laughs> all of a sudden, we have the killer dog, AJ. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is where it just becomes farce. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this is not the first time the show has had killer dogs uh, chasing our our people here. But, Spoiler uh, alert! Won't be the last. <laughs> uh, we won't have an official account of that, but that's no. an interesting, <laughs> uh, interesting thing. Uh, yeah, so a growling killer dog comes from around the corner. So. Maggie turns around and heads back the way she came, uh, and she manages to make it back to the kill room, unfortunately, goes in there, closes the door uh, on the growling dog. Uh, she backs her way into the room. She starts bumping into body parts that are hanging, the arm and a leg hanging from the ceiling like they were sides of beef. And then she looks over and sees our unfortunate old man before. from before. She sees his head uh, resting on one of the gurneys. 
that's not too thrilling for her. So she sort of screams. <laughs> and yeah, where was the sign that clearly marked this as the dismembered victims room? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, kill room is not specific enough. <laughs> so it's uh, she does spot a, a helpful sign in this room. It says exit. <laughs> so <laughs> she uh, heads off in that direction, which I admit is a bit more promising. Uh, sure. I mean, I maybe I maybe wouldn't trust every sign I see. Although, even though <laughs> Kill Room was Kill Room, uh, towards the slaughterhouse was towards the slaughterhouse. But you know, would I really be trusting if the sign said "Candy and Flowers"? Oh <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, boy! So she runs to the exit and hasn't learned her lesson about running places uh, in this place yet because. Uh, where she's going, there's another stairwell, but her momentum causes her to fall down the stairs. And, and can I just add, I mean, I, I don't want to be too critical of, of the show because it was obvious from the start that they just didn't really care about this episode. But she's not bleeding anymore. Like, her feet are not bleeding. They, they show shots of her feet because she's tumbling down the stairs and running around. And, you know, they were bloody <laughs> when yeah, she fell in the glass and everything. <laughs> They're not bloody anymore. When did she have time to clean up? She did not. (laughs) (laughs) So she falls before yet another door. She opens it. And through there, she can see what looks like her shoes. Or some shoes. I don't know if they were her shoes, but... I'm going to say her shoes, the way she reacted towards it. Yeah. So she uh, crawls forward toward them and... Hallelujah. She's looking outside of a door that that looks to go to the outside. We can see the uh, sun starting to rise, the sunlight filtering in. And uh, so she's happy about that. She, we also notice that the floor in here uh, has lots of pairs of shoes on the floor. But that's okay. She's going to start crawling toward them anyway. But unfortunately, as she's crawling forward, the door suddenly closes she hears the hissing of gas coming out of a pipe. She looks over at it and says, not fair. And it's not fair. Uh, it isn't. It is not fair. It's also incredibly ridiculous that this, the, the shoes are lying there in front of an open door with full fully bathed in sunlight, which would not be possible if the sun was just starting to rise. Like, you know, the, no, that's not that's not how sunlight works. <laughs> that's not how sunrises work. It's like it's mid afternoon. Oh, the sun's starting to rise. <laughs> like, so that's just wrong. Uh, and again, I get that she's been through an arduous affair and everything, but does she really think that just because she made it to this room and the sun is starting to rise and she can see sunlight that she's accomplished anything? She's clearly on like the the tenth floor of this facility. It's like it's not like I've made it outside. No, you made it into the death shoe room. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, she's you know, like she looks out the window. The sun is rising. Ah, freedom! No, look, you're at the top of a building. Where are you going? There's no fire yeah. escape. Like <laughs> you're still trapped. But I tell you one thing. I I agree. But if I could get to some kind of outside, I would appreciate that just to get a lay of the land and feel the outdoors. Like that would be nice. Sure, but yeah, but you're right. You, you are aware that time is up. He said till sunrise. It is now sunrise, <laughs> and you are nowhere near escaping 
<laughs> right. You know, yeah, you look out, you scream, help, help. Okay, I can see that. But that's not what she did. She, you know, she kind of walks it, waddles in and like, unfair. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's cut back to the police station. We're at an interrogation room where our fidgety, quote unquote, social worker guy <laughs> is sitting and uh he's saying to himself i I didn't do anything it's good everything is good everything's good uh outside of the room the uh team explains to the captain that this guy is terrified of the unsub garcia has found nothing on this particular guy other than him having a driver's license his name is stephen foster but he appears to have no other paper trail And they surmise to the captain that this guy has spent his entire life devoted to the unsub who takes care of him in return for him delivering him fresh victims. Um, And he's probably the only person alive, that is, that is truly aware of what this unsub is capable of. We do cut to a shot uh, here of our unsub putting on his surgical gloves. Dextering up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. McGee, Detective McGee, comes in asking if that's him, uh, looking through the glass at the uh, at the social worker, and they let him know it's not the actual unsub; it's just as his his accomplice, his only friend. JJ asks if they should publicize that they got him, but Hodge thinks that that would cause the uh, unsub to run away. So McGee asks, "How are they going to find the unsub?" And Hodge tells him. Well, Stephen there is going to tell us where he is. Oh, so you believe there's an unsub now? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We cut back to the shoe room. Our rubber-booted unsub comes in, starts dragging the unconscious Maggie out of the room. We cut back to uh, Hotch and McGee, who've walked into the interrogation room to talk to Stephen Foster. Uh, He starts going into a long monologue before they even say anything to him. He's just like, you took your time, didn't you? What am I doing here? I didn't do nothing. What's the charge? You don't have any proof. You don't have anything. What did I do? I I offered an old lady a a ride. Is that illegal? I don't think so. I should be getting some kind of award for instead of sitting here waiting for you guys to talk to me. But this this car wreck, it, it was the black guy's fault. He jumped into my van. He, it was his fault. It wasn't me. There was witnesses. You know, Hotch says, look, sit down, dude. Calm, calm yourself. Are you finished? <laughs> yes, basically. And Hotch goes into his little speech. You know, I've been standing on the other side of that glass thinking about what to do with you, Stephen. Uh, and you know what? This morning, I've decided to save your life. You're going to tell me where my killer is. You're going to give me his address. You're going to tell me how to get inside without raising an alarm. If I ask you to draw a map, you're going to draw a map. And you know why you're going to do this? Because he's never been nice to you. He constantly insults you and belittles you. He emasculates you, makes you feel ugly, stupid, and worthless. And nothing you do is ever right. It's never good enough. You hate him, Steven. And you're also going to tell me because you know you screwed up last night. He told you that your only concern was was to not attract the attention of the authorities, and you know that he's going to punish you severely. No one knows better than you what he can do to people. I've spent a long time studying monsters like your friend, and I can promise you he's going to do things to you that you can't even imagine. And uh, Stephen is like, oh, I can't. Apparently, his family has always worked for this other guy's family. 
It's all he knows. His father died last year and left everything to him, all the money, all the, he's the last one in the family. Uh, he's changed since his father died. He's, he's meaner. Oh, he's going to hurt me so bad. Uh, Hotch says, not if we lock him up. <laughs> <laughs> so he tells him to give him the name and, and you tell him and they can put him away. And so he says, Stephen says, okay, his name is Holcomb. His name is Charles Holcomb. He owns the old meatpacking plant, which sounds like a Scooby-Doo location if I ever He's at heard. the old meatpacking plant, Scoop. <laughs> <laughs> we do cut back to the meatpacking plant. Maggie wakes up. She's on the gurney, and the scene is uh, parallel to the scene of the old man in the beginning of the episode as she's being wheeled through past the burning cremation pit and uh she says are you gonna hide your face from me you coward that old man was begging but i'm not gonna give you that pleasure you son of a bitch i'm not gonna beg you for anything and uh our unsub calls her a whore again because why not because that's uh how they are this episode uh he says you're gonna beg they all do and then we don't have time for our unsub to actually do her any harm because as he picks up a big meat cleaver to start a working, the FBI bursts into the room and uh, says, Charles Holcomb, FBI, don't do it. He raises the cleaver at them. Let me do my job and uh, starts to go for it. But, uh, you know, he gets shot to death. Everybody shoots it. Everybody, Everybody shoots. shoots. It's not just Morgan. It's not just Morgan. Ah, yeah. Morgan friends it. Bang. Boom. Bam. Boom. <laughs> so, yeah. They go over to Maggie. It's okay. It's okay. It's all right. It's over. You got some cuts. You're going to be okay, though. But Maggie wants to see the guy's face. So, uh, they let her go over to see Charles Holcomb. And she's like, I won. Ha <laughs> I mean, I mean, look, you know, she, she needed closure. She needed to know that this guy wasn't all, all around every corner. She now hasn't seen the face of her boogeyman. I, I, I get the reason she wants to do this. And uh, good on good on the BAU for giving her that. So I think they mm-hmm. understand as well more than anybody. So basically, she asks about her baby. They're going to take her to an ambulance outside. They're going to take care of it. They're going to help her. She thanks them. And that's pretty much it, except for we do cut back uh, to the BAU office. Well, just before we get to the BAU office, there is one moment in the shoe room is, uh, you know, Mickey yes, yes. is kind of looking over all the shoes. And nobody says nobody says good job or you saved the day. Like he, he gets right coming over and touching his shoulder. Right. Like, yes. that's, that's I mean, dude. Dude. That's all you're going to get. Dude. <laughs> Dude. Oh, you were right this whole time about a serial killer that's killed probably 60 people. <laughs> so, right, Detective Wright was wrong. <laughs> Sergeant Wright was wrong. And McGee was right. Uh, yeah, I, you know, it, it just, it is who he is. He's not going to say that. But you, I would have wanted at least a handshake or something more than that. But, no, nope, mm-hmm. not going to get it. How about... Your dad would have been proud. Yes! 
don't establish it as a history without like you know yeah exactly yeah. There, there could have been something there <laughs> so, because, because uh, you had time for the final scene go ahead <laughs> yes cut back to the bau office we're in gideon's office again and of course he's showing them all a charlie chaplin movie and the whole team is in there and they're cracking up and uh bonding and enjoying it laughing uproariously jj is throwing popcorn at the back of reed's head because why not and uh I think the goofiest laugh of them all we hear is actually Gideon's laugh at this movie. And then we get uh, a quote at the end. Was it Hotch? I forgot actually well, who was saying the quote. Yeah, it was Hotch, even though the, the closed captioning said Gideon. I think I've, I've learned yes. how to tell their voices apart. Apparently closed captioning has. <laughs> yes. Uh, he says, uh, nothing is permanent in this wicked world. Not even our troubles. Charles Chaplin. I think that's a good use of a quote. Like, to put a Chaplin quote there after we've been watching Chaplin from the beginning to the end. That that, that I liked, even though, you know, there was no need for any of that storyline. <laughs> yes. And that was Legacy Season 2, Episode 22 of Criminal Minds. Uh, AJ, we like to ask ourselves at the end of each episode, uh, we have something we call the bow which lets us know if we feel that the team has one loss or pulled a draw for this particular episode. And what would you say, sir, for this week? Well, I mean, come on. Win, win, wins across the board for JJ for taking the case and recognizing there was a case for the team for convincing this guy that there was a case and for saving the only victim that they had. actually maybe two victims because mona would have was in trouble as well so uh definitely a full win bringing our record as we head into uh, the season finale at 10 wins five losses and six draws uh a far cry from season one's 13 two and six but still uh winning percentage not too bad mm-hmm perfect okay uh another thing we like to do aj uh, at the end of each show, a little feature I'm going to rename to three questions <laughs> because and I know that, that as soon as I name it, three questions will be the odd day that you decide to give me four. But <laughs> I think I can safely call it three questions. Uh, a little bit of uh, trivia that has come to you that's been inspired by the episode that we just watched. Indeed, indeed. You know my penchant for trivia, my trivia podcast, Beat My Guest. I like the trivia, and what better way to share that love of trivia by spinning off three questions uh, to you, good sir. Here we go. Question one. Actress Mary Gillis, who uh, I'm calling a.k.a. Morgan's homeless baby girl, Mona. (laughs) (laughs) And this woman uh, immediately popped pop for me because she has been popping up on tv for years and years as a veteran character actress uh frequently her roles are as a teacher so i would like to ask you on what show did mary gillis have a recurring role as mrs hagberg who in her five appearances was the home ec teacher the geography teacher the math teacher the history teacher and then retired (laughs) (laughs) wow 
I have no idea. Um, I was originally going to say, just based on her name, the uh, the many lives of Dobie Gillis, but I don't think that actually, I think she... Yeah, well, that was her name uh, in real life, yes. not the character yes. name, yes. Yeah, no, I just thought it might be fun, but that, yeah, and that was a long time ago, so instead, true, true, I'm true, true. going to, although she was probably around uh, for that, uh, but instead, I am going to make a just random guess of a school show, and I will say Boston Public. Boston Public, a fine fine show with the great Loretta Devine every week going, but Steven, I'm a teacher! And remember, she had a thing about shoes. She might have liked our unsung <laughs> Very true. Uh, no, this was a little bit more whimsical of a show than that because you know the running gag is like every time this woman showed up, she was teaching a different class <laughs> and doing it poorly. Um, this was That's What You Missed on Glee. Ah. Yeah, good old good old Mary Gillis was uh, was a fine uh, five episode character arc. <laughs> okay, good for her. And uh I I also want to point out real quick I just remembered that that it wasn't Loretta Devine's character that had the shoe fetish on Boston Public. It was another it was a parent, random parent. But Fair anyway, enough. Fair enough. I mean, we're not going to get into the Tony Heald of it all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Pulled that one out. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, don't ask me how I remember these things because I can't pull it <laughs> when I need to. Question two. Let's see if you can do a little bit better with this one. So Captain Wright in this episode was portrayed by Stephen Williams. Another television stalwart. Uh, he appeared 14 times on what Fox hit that had wrapped up its business five years prior to this episode. Some people who might have never watched the show might think that he was the title character, but he was not. What was the name of his character on this show? Hmm. So that's actually a little later if it was only five years before... So this was 2007, because I was originally going to say, I thought I recognized this actor from 21 Jump Street, but I think that was a little bit too early to have uh, wrapped up before, just five years before 2007. Uh, so I'm going to have to change. And you say he that... Some people thought he might have been the title character, but he was not. I'm saying that a little tongue-in-cheek, but perhaps it's just a okay. hint. <laughs> and uh, what was the name of the character, the actor again? Stephen Williams. Oh, okay. That doesn't help me. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to say the show in question that we are talking about, AJ... I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not asking for the show. I'm asking for the character name. Uh, yes. The character we are talking about, AJ, is... I don't know. <laughs> uh, I am going to say Captain... Uh, it's another Captain. And I'm going to say it was... <laughs> Because I'm in a rummy mood, I'm going to say it was Captain Morgan. Captain Morgan. 
No, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, you, excellent, excellent recall uh, for pegging Stephen Williams as being on 21 Jump Street. Yes, you are correct that you you have that correct. Just that's not what I'm talking about here. More than 14 episodes of that for him. Uh, also, I'm not talking about his uh, stint on Yellowstone. Apparently, he's uh, <laughs> been on that as well. Uh, no, this was a mysterious, shadowy character who used to hang out at the FBI and tell everybody uh, about the alien invasion and all the secret wink-wink and nod-nods. The show was The X-Files. And he was not Mr. Files. He was Mr. X. Not a title character. Ah, <laughs> uh, I get it now. Okay. I was trying That's to fair. be hinty. <laughs> I, uh... I watched the X Files, but only sporadically, so I don't remember him at all from that. But yeah, you okay, just pop out of the shadows, Mulder. <laughs> we gotcha. Got all right. <laughs> Finally, my favorite question of every single week is where we preview the next week's episode of Criminal Minds that we're going to cover here on Felonious Pundits, and this is a big episode. This next episode is the season finale of season two. Episode 23, 23, season now, two seasons going to be in the bag. And we're going to do this question a little bit differently. And from time to time in the future going forward, we might change up how we do this question. Normally, I will ask you, what is the plot of the upcoming episode going to be? However, when I give you the title of this episode, it's going to be fairly obvious what the plot is. And so when that's the case, I'm going to switch it up. And so I'm going to tell you the name of the plot. So let's get excited about it. The, the name of the episode, which is going to be the plot. It's No Way Out 2, The Evolution of Frank. Ooh. Frank's coming back, baby. We're getting a second yeah. episode of Frank. No Way nice. Out. We met Frank. No Way Out 2, The Evolution of Frank. So instead of asking you what the plot's going to be, it's going to be about Frank. I mean, I think you can figure that out. Uh, I'm going to ask you instead, which of the four things I'm about to say to you actually happens in the pre-credit sequence of the season finale. So mm-hmm. one of these four things is go- we're going to see, I-, I like using this because, you know, it's not really spoiling anything about the episode because we can see it right away. But nevertheless, okay. you've watched the show now for almost two full seasons. How would the character be reintroduced? What will happen in this episode? Is it A? A waitress at a diner talks to a colleague about an annoying customer who wants to order yet another milkshake. (laughs) Is it B? At the BAU, a bored team with nothing to do tries to guess Prentice's nickname from high school. (laughs) Is it C? Gideon is absolutely confused and perplexed by the concept of buying flowers. (laughs) Or is it D? It's Morgan's birthday! And as he opens his last present, out falls a wind chime made out of ribs. Mm. Which of these is actually going to take place pre-credits in the season finale? So I like what you did here. You gave me two things that are direct callbacks to Frank, being the wind chimes and the diner milkshake scene, 
which would be how I would think they would open it. But also you gave me two things that were just sort of other random things that could be happening um, that don't have anything really to do with that episode. And I think I'm going to go for one of those rather than the other two that may be a little bit too obvious in my mind. So I am going to go with, let's go with choice B. That was Prentice, uh, what was it again? <laughs> oh, a bored BAU team tries to guess Prentice's high school nickname. Yes. High school nicknames. I have some experience with that. Let's, Absolutely. Uh, say it's going to be that. <laughs> well, I, I mean, you de- directly sussed up my strategy in coming up with these uh, options. You are absolutely correct that they do not do that direct a callback to either the milkshakes or the ribs in the opening sequence. So well done there to 50-50 it. Let's see. <laughs> However, we are going to see. <laughs> Agent Gideon in a flower shop completely flummoxed as to how to buy flowers. <laughs> oh, boy. And you're looking forward to it just a little bit now, aren't you? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I have uh, high hopes for this opening scene and this episode in general. Uh, I am happy to hear we're going to have uh, Mr. Carradine back uh, as Frank, because that was one of the standouts from the first two seasons. I mean, you can't you can't have an unsub like that disappear and wander off into the darkness and never be seen again, right? So it's a good thing that we're beginning to learn that the show does have a bit of a memory. It's not always going to get it right, but uh, bringing Frank back, definitely worth it. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, I can't wait, but folks, we're going to have to wait because we're unfortunately at the end of our episode. Or maybe fortunately, depending on how you view view this particular episode. (laughs) Yes. Uh, But that's it for this week's Felonious Pundits. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you had a great time as per usual. Uh, Please be sure to subscribe to rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And please be sure to spread the word. Let your friends know about us. You can have fun with this show, even if you don't watch the episodes, I would say, especially like last week's was a pretty, pretty fun episode for sure. Uh, This one was decent. This one was decent, too. I I enjoyed the uh, time and I always enjoy my time with you, AJ. But that's it for us. You can. (laughs) 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 Ladies and gentlemen, for AJ Mass, this is Kintad Svensgaard saying goodbye and keep profiling. Wheels up. Legacy is a stupid thing. Bill Gates.